Come on, Jimmy. Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Circus. So you're here today to talk us about uh, Gothic horror, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Uh, okay, so let's start with that word, Gothic. Uh, what does that uh, evoke for you? What does that suggest to you? What is it about? So to me, it would suggest a sort of uh, a haunting in space and time, an idea of being uh, in some ways um, overwhelmed or consumed by something usually horrible from the past in some shape or form, a disruptive. Uh, possibly terrifying source of anxiety and dread um there's no one definition that we've ever agreed on in the gothic or in gothic studies but this is something to me that it always signals some sort of um disruption and that can be personal it can be existential it can be literally leading into fear or terror but it's it's that that disruption of the status quo that disruption of of comfort and calm something like the uncanny or something yeah very similar to the uncanny and then that would usually lead into that, that amplifying out from the uncanny into something that is closer to dread, I suppose. Does that mean that the um, that the common denominator is some kind of emotional disruption or psychological? It can be both, and it can work. They can work in tandem as well. I mean, you can have this idea of the emotional picking up on something that is uncanny or wrong or disruptive, and that can lead then to a psychological break, a fracture, some sort of distress. And it's best kind of amplified usually through something like um, representations from monstrosity or, or creatures or, or or things taking over the world, things like that. It always tends to have that gothic inflection of the world has been turned on its head. Things have been disrupted or made, rendered strange and horrifying. Okay, so because uh, when I think of the word gothic, sorry, rather naively, the first thing that pops into my head is architecture. Yes, gothic architecture. Yeah. Do those come out of that tradition of the of the architectural gothic architecture? Well, I mean, I suppose I I, I would not be an expert in, in 18th century kind of gothic architecture as such, but I suppose the idea behind that architecture is that it makes it. Again, it renders it sort of strange and is rooted in a particular type of um, fakery or over ornate uh, decoration as well. So you get that kind of filigree design that you would associate with the Gothic as well. You get that from the architectural angle or root, but it's not an area of expertise of my own. I do recognise that it's it's a really important element to sort of the, the beginnings of, of, of Gothic. Mm. My own understanding of it is more to do with the idea around... Um, houses and homes made made strange or domestic spaces rendered uncanny through um i suppose our relationship with the house and home and that will come out of that architectural angle i guess as well yeah so do you think there's um a difference between um i mean you looked at gothic from say the 1800s 1900s up mm. to the present day could you maybe give a sort of a Reported history of how yeah. the different periods. Uh... Okay, well, I mean, we do have the pre-Gothic, which is sort of you know, we're looking at the sort of ingredients of what is the Gothic. When you go back to you can go back to Jacobean theatre, you can go back to Shakespeare, and look kind of the, the the grotesque and the horrors, uh, you know, rise up time and again in the tragedies, uh, in Shakespeare. So you can see the kind of the pre-Gothic coming out there because we don't have the word Gothic at that point. Then when we get to um. I suppose the beginning of Gothic as we think of it is Walpole's um, The Castle of Otranto uh, in 1768. I'm going to hedge my bets so you can check that. Um, the Monk is one of them. The Monk as well. Matt, Matt Lewis is the Monk. Is very, Matt Lewis's Monk is very important in terms of depravity. And again, it's set in, these, you know, in, in the idea of um, uh, religious um, destruction, the idea of, um, you know, destroying something pure with uh, complete uh, savagery, I suppose. That's, that kind of underpins sort of, um, Matthew Lewis's uh, novel. We have So we have that, and then kind of moving into sort of the... Um, I mean, Frankenstein is obviously one of the huge kind of points you must hit in 1818, uh, uh, Mary Shelley's novel, uh, which kind of fuses the Gothic and the idea of the object and putting body parts together with, I suppose, the first science fiction novel as well, the idea of being able to reanimate the dead and the horrors of that. That that, uh, that ensues. Um, then we kind of run through, I suppose you get to the Penny Dreadfuls in the mid-century, um, Barney the Vampire, and there's lots of them. There's uh, um, Wagner the Werewolf. A lot of them that are to do with uh, this idea of lurid 
uh, cheap fiction being you know produced on a weekly or fortnightly basis essentially that will um that essentially people can enjoy so their lurid read their equivalent today i suppose of uh some sort of uh, terrible kind of cheap piece of fare to kind of keep you amused while you're going through living in Victorian slums, this kind of thing. Um, and that kind of sustains a lot of the Gothic narratives of the mid of the mid century, mid nineteenth century. When we get to the Fantasy Actor, things are really really exciting because we have Lewis Stevenson's um, Jekyll and Hyde, um, and that coincides also with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes in 1887 Jekyll and Hyde is um, the year before I believe and then we have uh, so we have you know, tales of great crime and terrible things happening in these urban environments the same thing with Stevenson's novel and then we get to the, the 1890s when things really kick off we get H.G. Wells and his science fiction with um, Time Machine 1995 and we get Dracula in 1897 and Dracula really ends the fin de siècle in so many ways because it is that juncture between modernity and uh, Victorian period and the explosion of modernity in the new century and the idea of looking forward to the 20th century. So that brings us just up to the 20th century, mm-hmm. but we have the kind of seeds of the modern Gothic um, narratives. We have Jekyll and Hyde, we have uh, Frankenstein and we have Dracula by the end of the 19th century. Yeah, so maybe we can talk later about uh, where you see the Gothic uh, today. <laughs> The question I really sort of want to ask to try and broach is trying to find out what the sort of the common denominators are of the Gothic. Like, so mm. if I asked you a simple question, like, uh, what is a monster or what is evil? Mm. Uh, or would it be more appropriate to ask what is scary? Yes, I, I think the Gothic does provoke a sort of an idea of what is frightening because what is frightening to me may not necessarily be frightening to you, so it is some way subjective. But um, I, it, again, it's that it goes back to that idea of disruption and um, and, and disrupting the equilibrium, just disrupting the status quo, um, and 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 provoking. It's more than the uncanny because it, it's producing not just a sense of unease but actually a sense of terror that there is some sort of threat. So I think yes, you can ask that to an extent. What is evil? The Odyssey alone is a mystery, so I'm not entirely so, sure if we could really get to the bottom of what is what is evil. Yeah, um, you think they're two separate questions? Th- they are in so many respects because because evil can be quite triumphant in the Gothic. So we don't get that restoration that you get with horror usually. With horror, you get this disruption of some. Think of a Stephen King novel, and um, you know you get a disruption of some kind, and usually it is contained, and the status quo is is uh, put back together again by the by by its solution or by its end. In the Gothic, it can linger on, and it can just dissipate into the ether of of modernity, which is quite frightening because there's no closure. The or there's, there's all the best tunes. Yes, exactly. So yeah. you know, you never really kind of can ever succeed. So uh, there's more sort of uh, conservative morality usually usually tied to horror, whereas with the Gothic, it's actually uncovering something that may outlast all of us. You know, it's uh, it can be something more ethereal, it can be something more theolo- theoretical or phys- philosophical. Okay, so I'm trying to think then, um, what do you think explains the Gothic sort of enduring uh, relevance or its enduring power over our imaginations? Why do we go to cinemas, for example, to sort of to choose to be afraid? I suppose in some ways it, fr- it, 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 it very much pushes the buttons of our evolutionary need to survive. It, 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 it's like the roller coaster experience. You, you have a limit experience in order to remind yourself that you're alive, but that you are finite, that you are fragile and that you will die. So this idea around the Gothic as well, it, it shows you that there are things that you take for granted about yourself, whether it's the limitations of your body, the inside, the outside, whether it's the idea of the psychological, the delicate nature of your psychology. These are all things that are brought into question and played with and, uh, and sometimes destroyed within those texts. So it becomes something that you can explore very safely while you're exploring very dark themes. We also, we do have, as human beings, we have a predisposition towards the dark. We do like stories about things where there is death, murder, mayhem. We like genres that are informed by those very things. Um, Poe was right when he talked about, you know, great stories basically being written around dead, beautiful women. So there is a there is a very, very interesting um, recurrent psychology around that that informs that. So the Gothic is a really good way to kind of it harbors all of our boogeymen, all of our our scary, uh, our, our worst nightmares about ourselves as people in particular. We so, usually throw it onto monsters, but it's actually people are the things you should be afraid of, not monsters. Yeah. <laughs> very yeah. profound that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, is it so? You use the word harbor there. That's an interesting mm-hmm. word because harbor implies a place of safety and solace and refuge. Is our engagement, our 
fascination with horror in a, an attempt to sort of control these things that we might find frightening? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I find that, you know, the people who tend to love horror films or the people who tend to love horror fiction find that as a, it's a really safe release for any kind of anxieties that you have about the world. I mean, nothing can be as bad as the things that, you know, you imagine like you read in a novel. Real life doesn't hopefully get to be as bad as anything you find in a piece of fiction. So it's safety valve, essentially, an emotional, psychological safety valve. Um, and the Gothic works like that too, but it might not necessarily close the valve at the end of the story. It might leave it open to linger or to remind you that there's this uncanniness in the world and that your perception is now tuned to it. The thing about, I suppose, the idea around why we have these these this idea of it harboring something is is to do with the the idea that at the end of the day, monsters are always symbolic of human horror and human human atrocity. So conquering monsters is an imaginative way to deal with actually the horrors that we face in everyday life or the horrors of history, um, the horrors of what we have done to other people or what other people have done to us. So it's all about that idea of going back to that basic concept of othering and how we how we do that. Monsters represent others to us. Oh, so when you say othering, you mean, could you maybe just explain that because not everybody might be Sure, no problem. So um, othering is usually a way for us to differentiate a group that we are familiar with, familiar with that's us, whether we identify that through race, religion, um, gender, sexuality, any kind of sense of belonging of a group dynamic, nationality, uh, and then others or other uh, people who to on onto whom we project opposites of us, or uh, perhaps um undesirable traits or things that we are we have decided that are not representative of our values or our identifiers. So it's it, othering can be something. It just it 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 it, it basically decodes a difference. And that's often used for, you know, nefarious ends or for perhaps sexist or racist ends as well. So it has very it has very um, negative um, connotations. But on top of that, usually within theory itself, it's used as a way to differentiate another kind of um, group or person who harbours different concepts to our own. And you, do you think then that horror or gothic horror um, are ways of... I don't know, culturally representing this, trying to tease out mm-hmm. uh, what's involved in these, the lesser angels of our nature. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you can have a monster or, or represent the um, issues or, or thematics ideas in the contemporary world that we don't necessarily want to name because it is fiction, but we, we, might, necess- we might throw onto that character or that monster a particular representative sort of set of traits or codings that are recognisable as representative of something that we don't like. And it can be used for a cathartic purpose or it can be used for negative purposes, depending on the fiction and the, and the audience. So um, what would be useful uh, is to um, maybe go through some of our classic monsters okay. and uh, um, see what you think about um, how they represent different aspects of horror. Maybe sure, you know. so, sure. I've got a list here. It's really, really detailed. I'm going to start. It's, it's just reads vampire, werewolf, zombie. You know? <laughs> so I start with the vampires. Okay. Erica. That's um, one that probably take the longest. Um, that's well, okay. Well, vampires. It would depend on your type of vampire. I mean, we'll, we'll start with Dracula. I suppose being the most famous. Bram Stoker's. Bram Stoker's eighteen oh seven. The the Count, the one who basically takes over the entire twentieth century. He is the longest afterlife of probably any Victorian character save Sherlock Holmes he's the most ad- adapted to the screen as well um you're looking at about 300 film adaptations anyway um so what oh, okay what oh, the great the great theorist Nina Auerbach um who wrote a fantastic book called Our Vampires Ourselves wrote that she wrote two very important things she says one thing fashions determine Dracula's and she's right Dracula's constantly change depending on the social circumstance of the film the way the films are designed the period in which they're produced uh, and the audiences to whom uh, at whom they're directed, and she also say that vampires go where power is, and that's so true as well. Vampires do migrate along with the cultural power centers that produce them. So vampires go from the nineteenth century uh, novel, the British novel, the Gothic novel um, of the nineteenth century, and they migrate with cinema to America in the twentieth century. So you have this proliferation of the monster going abroad or, or going international as such. The vampires become more popular as a result in the popular culture. So, says so, so something like Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm. then, which is the classic uh, representation of the vampire, I guess. I mean, what always sort of struck me about that was that he's 
not in it really, is he? Is there, there's vampires. Yeah. That's true. He's, that's, he's an absent kind of beyond. That's, that's actually true. He, he is, in a novel that bears his name, he's actually got surprisingly little uh, action. <laughs> you know, he's, he's he has this wonderful opening sequence where we meet, you know, like Jonathan Harker goes to Transylvania and, and goes into the castle and we have this eerie, beautiful space where um, it's very evocative and very terrifying at the same time where Jonathan Harker meets the Count and we understand this kind of otherness that's going on there. But then... You know, pretty much we, while Dracula's heading off to, to, to England, then we have this whole other drama unfold with uh, Lucy Westerner and Mina, Mina, Harker, Mina Murray, who becomes Mina Harker, and uh, and then, you know, the Sewards and everyone else. So we get this kind of um drama within the centre of this novel, and this novel sort of is uh, bookended, I suppose, with um the, these exciting moments between Dracula and the, the uh, Van Helsing's crew of light, as such, who are off to fight him. Um, but this novel is has the seeds of so many interesting ideas about what vampires can represent afterwards. I mean, certainly this novel has been read in relation to anxieties around reverse colonisation, for instance, if you're reading it in terms of the history of the British Empire and what happens when those whom you colonise follow you home. So that's your otherness, That's basically. anotherness, again, the idea of what do we... What do you do when someone from Transylvania, the place from beyond the forest, which is what it literally means, what happens when that person actually takes on the might of the British Empire and decides to actually invade from the inside, mm. slips behind borders, slips through the rocks and actually ends up taking and turning your place, your space, the centre yes. of the empire itself, your women. This is what it does. And this this is how he... This is the threat that Stoker, that Stoker's count really present, uh, represents. And you think Stoker is trying to presage well he's not presaging he's talking about it in his own times obviously but he's do you think it's sort of presaging sort of some of the debates we have now about immigration and how to code the foreign yes well but i i think well we've, we've always as humans have always done that in relation to other people that they don't know and whether those markers are are, are you know, foreign whether that's represent could be represented by many different criteria this is something that we've we've been you know was been debated in the 18th century 17th century these things have been had with us for hundreds of years not millennia so this idea is just that it's just different groups groups change over the period of history but we still have anxieties about other people who aren't like us who don't share our values so this is very much flagged up when you look at Soper's novel and you look at the period in which it was produced, yes, it's talking about um, the Jewish community. It's talking about Eastern Europeans coming into England, especially into East End London. You have it's similar kind of anxieties were around about Jack the Ripper. So you and that's again the same within the same decade. So you're looking at um, the same kind of anxieties and articulations are just being informed. But the, the terrifying aspect of Count Dracula is not that he just represents the foreign, but he represents the elite. He's also he financially viable. He's he owns crowd, property. He? Yes, exactly. So he comes in and he not only just comes in and, and tries to take over, but he also buys property. So he's literally becoming, he's going native. He's literally taking with him the soil of his own country and polluting the, the empire from within. This is the power of that novel. So sort of say that, what do you do when someone, the other, comes in and actually buys up parts of your own land. So this is one of the articulations mm -hmm. around it. It's like, giving voice to all these things. Yes, yeah. it gives voice to it. And I mean, again, it makes it very timeless because these are issues that we come across again and again. The same thing is true in relation to female politics and police and female body, which is very much something that comes out of Dracula as well. Isn't that theory out there that it's... it's that it's, it's, well, I mean, I'm not sure... Well, you can tell me more about this, but isn't the theory... Isn't there kind of a, the idea that uh, sort of Dracula is kind of sort of a about sexually transmitted diseases in the Victorian yeah. period. Yeah, it has been read that way, whether it's through the syphilis, which is a you know very a sort of a rampant disease of that period, or or the idea, again, of even miscegenation, the idea of actually, um, again, uh, forming relationships or sexual unions with people outside of your own, um, whether it's your own uh, uh, national identifiers or indeed other races. So again, this is con this, there is this terror around the idea of crossbreeding or crossing bloodlines. So again, the idea of blood and soil quite literally come into play in Dracula. So, and uh, I mean, he's also, we should probably talk about it because he's, he's a, a, Bram Stoker was Irish, right? Yes, yes. Um, is, 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 uh, does he, you think, in the novel, does Stoker sort of um, reconcile the relationship between Ireland and England in the novel? Is that? 
it's been in that colonial context it's been read in that colonial context as well i mean i mean stoker's stoker's own relationship with ireland i think is quite interesting because he was a protestant who grew up in a wealthy suburb of dublin he grew up in in, in clontarf um he was very well educated he had a long-standing relationship with the wilds he um was very very successful student in trinity um so you know an intellectual uh and then went into the civil service so uh, and wrote his first novel there. So again, he's kind of he has all the right he has all the right stuff, if you know what I mean, for a very particular quality of life in Dublin. But writes a fond letter to Henry Irving, and says to Henry Irving, "I'll follow you wherever you go." And Irving, Henry Irving is he? Uh, sorry, would have been a very very famous Victorian actor, sort of like the Derek Jacobi of the stage in like the late nineteenth century. Um, and he goes to run um, his theatre in London, the Lyceum Theatre, which is uh, still hosting the Lion King today. So um, he he goes and relocates his whole life up sticks, goes and moves his whole life across to the UK um, in London, where he's hanging out with the, the glitterati and the, and the stars of the London stage. So it's a very interesting dynamic between the civil servant, the bland civil servant who writes fiction to pass the time and enjoy himself, and then the one who literally migrates across into this completely other life where and which he writes Dracula by night. Um, the relationship between Ar- him and Ireland, I mean, we don't get, he, he had very good connections in Ireland, but I don't think he ever planned to sustain those once he kind of left for England. That was a different life chosen for himself and his wife, um, Florence. But I think, I think, I suppose, with the relation to the allegories of what's going on in the novel, people have read... Dracula as sort of symbolic of maybe perhaps this English colonialization of the Irish and Renfield as being this character who harbors the power perhaps but or, or the desire for that kind of power but actually can't see it through in the end. Um you can read it supposed through the complexity of character, but I think it, I think it's more in tune with and I, I suppose it, it yields more readings from the idea of actually empire being empire will always rot from the inside, someone will find a way in and take it down that way. So um you know, I think there's 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 interesting things you can read out of it. My favourite theory, though, is actually around the name of the book as well, which it has been disproven, but I still love it as a theory. Just a bad is, blood uh, thing. Yes, exactly. Dracula, so Dracula yeah. and Dracula. I love that as a girl girl. I think that's a wonderful one because it's like it's it, at the very least it's imaginative. So you know, it's like, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. So do you think at the end of the novel, it's, it's does any form of reconciliation, or is that? disruption continue that you talk about as part of the gothic well Dra- dragon himself does perish but i mean you do get this idea of the supernatural being something that can always come back so even if you stem the tide this time you've stopped something like dracula something unimaginable like dracula this time who knows it might come back you know what i mean so it's a bit like shelley's frankenstein this idea that you know just because you can do it and it's sure that's awful it doesn't mean that someone else might come along and try it again you know so then from what's your take been on i guess how the vampire has been represented say maybe make it a little bit more local in the last 10 15 years have you seen any interesting iterations of uh, the original uh, stoker novel uh well i've seen some some insane adaptations um that are not, not that have nothing to do with the novel i mean if anything in the 21st century now we've, we've pretty much gotten to a point in you can have Dracula branding alone without having any mention of Stoker, any mention of the novel. And that's largely thanks to Coppola's Dracula, the film from 1992, because while that film has claimed the author as part of its title, so it's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. So we have this double layering of authorial claim on the story. Um, what has happened is, is that people assume that's the novel in visual form. I'm not going to read the novel. And then what happens is uh, essentially it kind of kills off Dracula films for the rest of the century. In the 21st century, then, we get this kind of iteration of, well, maybe Dracula can be symbolic of something like um, in Dracula 2000, which is a really not great film, but uh, it has some interesting ideas. Dracula is actually really um, Judas Iscariot. Yes, I remember this, yeah. Yeah, so you kind of go, okay, that's an interesting take on it. It's a very Catholic take, but okay, fair enough. Um, it, it can it can yield that Dracula is a robust name, a robust character because of popular culture in the 20th century. So he, I suppose it can bear the weight of that, that quite ostentatious claim. But then by the time we get to Dracula Untold, which is 2014, that basically, that's a, an 88 minute, minute film, which is an extension essentially of the first four minutes of the Coppola film. So now we're going back into these kind of loops of citation that completely destroy or just ignore the Stoker um, 
Stoker novel. So people have essentially written Stoker out of his own creation at this point, and Dracula becomes symbolic of so many other sort of usually Hollywood executive decision making uh, aesthetics rather than actually anything to do with the gothic and the novel. I mean, some films have gone so far as to de-gothicize Dracula altogether, so um, which is shocking in its own right. Yeah. So. What would you and is there anything that you've thought have been other than say Dracula 2000 uh, is there any versions of uh, vampirism that you've seen in literature, poetry, movies that you thought that you've thought have been I, unique or fresh or uh, innovative? I, I did think True Blood was a very, very good idea. The television series, now I, ha- I must admit, I haven't read all the novels, the, the source material, but um, the Sifi Stackhouse Mysteries, but I have I thought that it was such a fantastic promise of a television series um, back in 2008 because what it did was is it brought vampires and assimilation together. The idea that you wouldn't have True Blood re- as a TV series and the popularity of it without having something like Twilight. And Twilight was very, very right-wing in many respects. It was very detrimental, I think, to representations of feminism, representations of female empowerment. These were all big problems. Okay, so that. the thing with Twilight is that it was about right-wing, chastity. Chastity, right-wing behavior um religious subscription um and i i patriarchal values run amok essentially um but what that produced in the backlash was actually something really really left-wing really liberal and uh, and, and and very much an empowering thing about vampirism really being a representation of lgbtqi rights and as a result what you have is actually this this wonderful left-wing flourishing coming out of something like true blood which is all about equality so vampirism takes on this huge huge social issue in the end of 2008 and and harbors in within it all the variations of contemporary life that have been suppressed under republican presidencies so you have this mm-hmm. this, this great flourishing coming out in the backlash of twilight so i thought that was a fascinating kind of um frisson mm-hmm. in, the, in that kind of very short period um and i mean true blood did peter out in the end but uh, it did harbor some very interesting political and cultural ideas and being a hbo series had a lot of violence and a lot of blood and guts which again was completely saturated out of twilight so that was great so do you think that um do you think then that sort of vampirism is a predominantly sort of a western um uh, phenomenon are they the representation of vampirism or is a response to sort of western rationality or western sort of I think the, discourse the versions that we have are are very much based on western ideology western ideas and notions and values um but i mean there are other uh, folkloric representations of vampirism that are you know completely um localized to uh, other cultures and communities so there's the hopping vampire in chinese culture there's the arithmetic vampire um that can have must count uh, sand or grains of sand, grains of uh, sand or grains of rice whatever that's in asian culture but it's also in slavic culture um so you do have localized vampires um, the best one I heard about Irish Irish vampirism was uh, the bishop who had become become a vampire who walked himself home from his own funeral, which I think is kind of wonderful because it does give you this idea of the Irish wake as well. So it's a uh, it's quite and uh, those Montague summer. So I, again, you have this wonderful kind of folkloric element to it. Um, but they tend to harbor ideas around power, and and uh, and and how power corrupts. And and I think that that's kind of the core of all vampirism. It's to do with some sort of power and corruption in some shape or form. A corruption it couldn't be anything mm. corruption of the self corruption of values a critique of values critique mm. of culture oh that's one of the things then that goes on uh, that we should go on to talk about is um before we move on to our other monsters i'll oh. ask you one last question about the, the vampire. I told you the vampires i can talk about them all day <laughs> <laughs> is the um is it you know we live in sort of very technological rational efficient times mm. is it is it is there something about vampirism it's mythic. You use the word folkloric a minute mm. ago. So is it is it something mythic? Vampires, yeah, they take on. They are mythical, and they are. I mean, because obviously they possess the one thing that we can't have as humans, which is that they are supposed to be immortal. So whether that immortality is a thousand years or literally eternal eternity, it doesn't really matter. It's it's longer than human lifespan. So therefore, it's something. It's something that has uh, a, a, an appeal because we nobody wants to confront death, but at the same time, it's also a damnation because death is the only release. So it has that mythical quality to it. However, vampires are very, very good at staying, and I quote Stoker, up to date with a vengeance. So what tends to happen is, is that vampires tend to embrace technology. They intend to embrace this idea of being up to date. So the Blade movies, the Blade films, absolutely. The idea that you know they will embrace something to do with either genetic engineering, they will, uh, or indeed they will harbor guns and whatever it might be, um, 
as I say, things that are up to date. Also on screen, their bodies change as well. They become more stretched and explosive on screen. So they don't tend to have the limit, the limits of the corporeal, the limits of the flesh anymore. They are now beyond flesh. They literally can, their, their, their mouths, their whole faces can change and stretch and explode. So you have this, this idea of the fantastical and beyond. So they take with them the past, but they very much are designed with the contemporary in mind. So they don't look too musty anymore. You know what I mean? They tend to look. Yeah, they're more feel cobwebs or living yeah, coffins. That, yeah, that just doesn't cut the mustard <laughs> anymore. So, yeah, they're sort of yeah. very versatile. They're on the internet. Yeah. And <laughs> but strangely, oh, yes, they do. I mean, they do use the internet. I mean, Anne Rice's last, she restarted her Vampire Chronicles in 2014 and her vampires are whinging about using, you know, internet banking and iPhones and it does feel a bit like the author is just very frustrated with modern life and it's coming through the voices of her vampires but um, vampires still they, they're very much in love with the idea it's very very navel gazy they love the idea of their own period in which they've grown up and they've made try and recapture it so they're very nostalgic for a past but realise if they're going to survive and be immortal, they have to catch up with the present. So that tension is always So that's there. what kind of puts against their sort of the more conservative impulse to capture a lost past. Which, yes, uh, it's romanticised enough. But then at the same time, they realise, as we suppose we all do, that we have to live in the contemporary moment. So vampires try to struggle with that too. And there's your gothic. It's the displacement mm-hmm. of time. It's that idea that, you know, they are something completely of a different era that must in some ways contend with the contemporary. Aren't we all, as you say? Aren't exactly, we? aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move on to our other monsters. So sure. let's do the werewolf, shall we? <laughs> oh, uh, surprisingly not my area of expertise. Mm. But um, so I can't, I can't really speak to much of it as well. But I suppose the, the classic way of reading is with most uh, most things to do with werewolves is to do with the animal within. Um, the idea of that bestial side of human human psychology. Jekyll and um, Hyde would be a version of it. Jekyll and Hyde would, has definitely got inflections of that for sure. Um, the idea of being able to trigger something that you didn't even know you had within your uh, your own skin. Um, the werewolf has been interesting enough, though. It's always been classed alongside vampirism. It's been classed as something con- particularly of a working class ethic or working class representation. Oh, that's interesting. So, sorry, could you think? So, the vampires, you said, started off with, uh, well, the big the big sort of big bang of vampires uh, was Dra- Dracula. Dracula, Polidori and a couple of others. But they're aristocrats. All, all aristocrats, yeah. Mm. Um, Polidori's the vampires through Michael, um, James Michael, Malcolm Reimer, his vampire as well, and Rusman. They're all either counts or lords, and they all infiltrate high society property ownership. Werewolves, no, not at all. They don't have those kind of claims. Werewolves are usually working class representations of uh, masculinity and this idea of... Uh, not being able to control the feral side of yourself, so um, it does kind of bring it bring about this kind of class, uh, class dynamic and um, and class warfare. Can you think of any examples of that? Or, or um, off the top of my head, now I'm just trying to think. I mean, again, I'm, it is actually in True Blood. Funnily enough, if you do look at the the werewolves and the werepanthers and all those kind of magical variants, are all um, working class builders or or something like that. You know, what I mean, they're all about the the the, phys, the physicality of it. In Twilight, it's related back to the um, American Indian myth, uh, myths around animals and relationships to animals in the natural earth. Of course, we have the Wolfman. Um, I'm just um from the 1940s. Um, with Universal Studios. Um, and then there was an awful remake with Jack Nicholson in the 1990s. Um, but again, this idea of not being able to control like yourself that the there's something and that's terrifying to anyone. The idea that you cannot control the limits of your own psychology. Is it always something to do with sort of the distinction between? Or the accommodation, perhaps, between nature and culture? Is that something that you see in the I think, so, yeah, the nature-nurture argument is very much there mm. as well, because often the times you find, even with Buffy, I remember um, with Oz, for instance, one of the characters in it, the idea of that, you know, you can become a, an animal, you can become a wolf, but you should be able to control it or curb it in some capacity, I think is quite interesting. So it means that you shouldn't give in to your full feral nature. We should be domesticated. We should be subdued in some way or propriety. So I think there's something interesting there in relation to... Um, controlling animalistic urges that we that we have as, as as former primates you know what i mean so you know yeah so it's it's basically trying to reflect on the animals ahead of our mm, nature put yeah. very simply yes yeah? yes pretty much yeah. yeah okay so i'm sure there are werewolf experts who have plenty more to say on than i do <laughs> yeah that's pretty much my understanding what's your take then on the zombie because that ah. is everywhere at the moment we've got yeah. the walking dead is the big tv show du jour basically yeah, yeah. i mean we've had 
Okay, we have zombie history going back a lot earlier than people think. I mean, we have it going back to Haiti, for instance. Um, it's Haiti. usually attributed to Hollywood, isn't it, the zombie? It is, yeah, because it was kind of a creation of sort of, uh, again, Haitian myth, and it kind of got fused then with Hollywood culture. So the Haitian myth of the idea of... Um, voodoo, is it? Voodoo and um, the sugar plantations and um, and slavery, essentially, you know, 19th century slavery essentially of uh, of um, which makes it because it would be a distinctly American yeah. subgenre of the gothic yeah very much so I mean certainly taking this idea I mean the word itself comes from I can't remember the name of the dialect now at the moment but uh, it comes from a very particular an zombie essentially which was this idea of someone who was in a kind of perpetual sleep essentially someone who was um, pretty much like sleepwalking they weren't able to break free and have their own autonomy they were controlled or kept lulled into a particular position so we have this in haitian culture you have a film um white zombie uh, with um bella lugosi in the 1930s who has this uh he's got a father his name is murder legend but i mean wonderful. what a wonderful name you could yes of course it's bella lugosi so um but he keeps his slaves essentially subdued um in on the sugar plantation in a sort of a perpetual sleep they don't. Um, so there's hinterland between life and death. Yeah, it's it. They're, but they're not dead. They're very much sort of kept in this uh, almost like a coma, you know, um, as such. Um, and then this gets shifted pretty much in 1968 with George Romero's um, Night of the Living Dead, where they are. They're not called zombies. They're called ghouls. But the idea is essentially lifted from Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, which is a fantastic 1954 vampire novel. Um, but uh, it works perfectly for Romero's film because it's the idea of being trapped in a house and everyone around you in the outside world are have gone funny. They've been awakened from some sort of mysterious signal from Venus, so it's got a little touch of science fiction to it. Um, and the dead arise and they are eating people, and that's that's pretty. I mean, it's pretty apocalyptic, pretty horrifying, but it's such a great grungy beautiful wonderful film um that has most certainly got political elements to it uh, in relation to um nixon and the silent majority for instance in the late 1960s that rising up against the counterculture um you know, it has a black protagonist which again was considered to be highly confrontational in 1968 um so all of these um different flashpoints the film is just at the right moment at the right time and has the right thing to say so what anxieties didn't you think it's giving expression to Oh, it's definitely well, what's the disruption, as he says. Mm, well, I mean, this, I, this idea that the ancient, the old will eat the young. This is something that you know. Again, if you if you look at the nineteen sixty eight, the kind of the, the crossroads in American culture. You know, the um, it's called the magic the magic year in American studies, and um, things just completely conflate. You have the um, student protests. You have um, generational Robert, tension. Generational tension. You've got you know the assassination of Robert uh, Robert Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, and all of this is coming at a time when the whole South feels like a powder keg. So you have this in relation to uh, getting civil rights, actually the, the actual full implementation of civil rights. So all of this is happening. You have this lead character who's, a, who's an African-American who is going to survive and he, he's not complacent or subdued. He's very much has his own agency and sort of will to survive in this film. On top of that, you have a child killing a parent in the film uh, with a trowel, which is rather wonderful. Um, so you have these very visceral moments of the destruction of the family, the and the destruction of the old South and Southern order, where it, you know, and the racist institutions that it props up. But then this, at the very end of the film, is absolutely destroyed by the fact that we have these Southern sheriff-like characters show up, identify our lead character Ben as someone who is. They say, "Oh, he looks like a zombie," and shooting him down. And that's the devastation of it. That's indistinguishable from the monster. Yeah, but we also think that is this this is the great question of that film. Is it an indis- is it that they can't distinguish or is it that they don't distinguish? They don't want to distinguish. And that's yeah, is it racism yeah. or is it or, or is it uh is it horror or is it both? So I think that's what works really well. So Romero's film is so important because it has all these contains all these kind of flashpoints. And then by the time we get to the, his his second, arguably a, another masterpiece, um, Dawn of the Dead, nineteen seventy eight, this relocates our zombies to a shopping centre, to Monroeville Mall, and this is where we get that kind of the wonderful kind of idea of the metaphor of the zombie as as consumer, as unbridled, unending consumer. Um, there's a great line in the film that's quite haunting, which is that why did they come here? It's like well, they came here in life. So they remember. They remember to go shopping. Essentially, they remember to consume. So they why would they not come here in death? Essentially, so this is all is all building up to this idea that that zombies the all consuming metaphor, 
they come back, they're in vogue now and again, but and then obviously when they became faster zombies in the 21st century, they most certainly came back with a vengeance. Um, but I still think they harbour the same anxieties. Well, that's what I, I meant to ask you that because one of the, I thought <laughs> maybe one of the interesting versions of the zombie was the um, Danny Boyle's yeah. 28 Days Later series. Yeah. Um, what did you think of, uh, of that as a version of it? Absolutely brilliant. I'm so, so interesting because it was, um, I mean, it was terrifying. I remember it was one of those films that genuinely quite unsettled me when I'd seen it. Uh, I still worked in video stores back then, so I'll tell you how long ago that was. But I remember it unsettled me because... Um, the horror of that film again was not only to do with the fact you have these fast running zombies and contamination and virality and all that kind of stuff that makes people feel quite queasy but the real there's a great turning point in that film the horror of, of the situation for the two female characters is that they have been lured to a place of safety not because these soldiers want to protect them from the zombies but because they have a very particular function for um for the soldiers who are lonely shall we say so there is there's a an increased horror then that's kind of turned on its head and made horrific through exploitation and, and, and gender exploitation so i thought that was that was a brilliant turn that really made the concept some basically being undead is not the worst thing that can happen to you is what that film is saying essentially um, and that we all are, we all can be in some ways provoked to act and look like an unthinking zombie. There's a, a sequence in it when our lead character, um, played by Killian Murphy, is his goes through such an experience of fury to protect his two female uh, friends that he is indistinguishable very briefly from the zombies that they are running away from. So you can tap into those very base emotions without actually dying. Again, we've kind of Danny Boyle's from really hits it on the head that you know, um, to be a zombie is, is not necessarily too far a step away from where we are right now. Yeah, and it was probably giving the anxieties it was giving expression to would have been in the. Do you think in the you know it was uh, when was it come out? It was about two thousand six? Was it? No, uh, no, much earlier. Uh, earlier? Two thousand and one. It came oh, out. Well, golly, there's, yeah. a, there's a wonderful shot in the opening of it, um, which uh, was very reminiscent of nine eleven, and people were wondering was it shot just before, or just after nine eleven? I think it was shot just before nine eleven, but didn't come out until yeah, and it was a really that desolate. deserted London shot. Yeah, which I was is about to quite say. Quite eerie. It's it's, so, it's quite uh, desolate uh, urban environments. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and Manchester burned in it as well, didn't it? Oh God, yeah, I've forgotten that actually. Yeah. <laughs> God, I'll have to go back and rewatch that. Yeah, but I, I mean, it just made you. Feel, I suppose it's that anxiety of you have to think of the period in which it came out as well. We were just in this period where we had come out of um anxieties around um flus coming in from different parts of the world um i think it has just predated swine flu but there was um oh man uh n1h1 and then there was a couple of other viruses so there was this idea that you know now that we're a globalized world we can have um, sickness coming in from anywhere and we can't stop it because you know we know how to handle vampires we don't know how to handle you know uh, problems at airports where people are coming in and they might be very very ill there is a tinge, I think, of anxiety there about, you know, various parts of the world and uh, Western privilege and all that. But I do think as well that there was a there was genuine fear at the time about contamination and biology and weaponizing particular um mm. Outbreak agents. was a movie at the same time, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, I, outbreak is the nineties yeah. and outbreak yeah. again had this idea of, you know, bitten by a monkey, the world ends. Um conta- uh, what's the other one? Contagion, which came out there about ten years ago, nine, ten years ago. Again, you know, back droppings equals world contamination. Pandemic terror is something that, mm. you know, again, zombies can often represent mm. that in some shape or form. So but that's a good example, I guess, for you of the gothic responding to the times and trying to Absolutely unpick uh, all these problematic concepts we have. What about um, well? I have to ask about the Walking Dead. Then, what is what is your take on that? Is that is that? Uh... Oh man, I've only watched I've only watched the first season of Walking Dead. I am absolutely uh, perplexed in a way as to I understand why people would be really interested. In, I really understand the, the the zombie metaphor and the value of that metaphor, but I kind of think where is there to go in that story? That's, but I suppose it's all character led mm. anyway. But um, it's kind of purgatory, is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, the Walking Dead are, of course, the humans, not the not those mm. left behind. And again, the idea of what do you do if you have to restart the world anew? Now there are the interesting films that kind of tackle this as well. Stakeland, which is a post-apocalyptic vampire film, which came out about nine years ago, that's got the similar kind of thing of starting the world anew and a new Eden and a new world that has to be built out of the ashes of America. Um, similar one was done with uh, Zombieland, and uh, you know this. It's been going on for a while. Um, this idea of the 21st century seems to be riven with the idea that, you know, 
what hope we had for before 9-11 now afterwards it's all about well the apocalypse is coming it's just a question of which one gets us because it's going to come and get us so I understand why the zombie is uh, proliferating so so well and so healthily in the 21st okay. century okay um, now the other uh, I guess I should mention ghosts oh yeah, yeah. ghosts um, uh, how uh, as a as a form of the gothic where, yeah. where do you see that uh, do you see valuable representations of it uh, in, in contemporary uh, literature poetry and movies or and how does it compare to our other monsters it's, it's our oldest one I think really I mean I know we all talk think about vampires mm. being quite old but really I mean again I was talking earlier too about the pre-gothic you know think of Hamlet's father mm. you know what I mean this idea of this something from beyond warning of a great danger or a great disruption or a great injustice can be committed it's the old one of the oldest ones and this idea as well it's a very I suppose quite a comforting idea that we have some purpose in our afterlife perhaps to actually convey messages or to to right a terrible wrong from beyond the grave so it's it's consistently throughout the gothic again the idea of being haunted is not necessarily being haunted by a thing a spectre but rather the idea of being haunted by your own psychology or your own sin or guilt or whatever kind of um, manifestation it takes um so it's riven with the gothic so it's kind of ghosts tend to be then a representation of uh, guilt. I think one of the best I've seen recently was in the bridge. I'm not sure if you see oh, that. Oh yeah, wonderful. Yeah, where it was, it was very subtly done. It was done in a very sort of a sense of everyday life. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't supernatural per se. Exactly. It was in, it was in the tradition of Ibsen, I guess, ghosts. You yes. know, yeah. So that exactly. would be a good example of this. I think. Yeah. Is there anything else? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a wonderful example. Um, Saganorin's whole emotional past. I think that idea and putting that to rest is such a huge part of that last series of the bridge. Um. Oh, there's so many to think I mean I'm, I suppose the ones I'm dealing with most of the time do tend to manifest themselves but I mean um, whether it's the exorcist or or, or anything thereof um, Hereditary is a really really good one as well so that was kind of a ghost story or similar it had ghost story slice sort of inflections to it um, I suppose the psychology of the idea of the fractured male subjective experience in 1990s cinema which was all about the idea of what you think or what you understand or what you believe to be real isn't. I think that that's got that hauntology behind it, that idea of um that kind of gothic disruption. I mean, even Christopher Nolan, who a director I've written about quite a lot, a lot of his films are about, you know, the incorrect nature of our perception, that what we perceive to be true is rarely true, and that is usually informed by guilt in some shape or form. So guilt takes on that kind of manifestation. Yeah, I guess ghosts, as you, you alluded to the nature of the mortality of ghosts, also come from the religious traditions, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. then it's, is it then ghosts are versions of sin, I guess? They can be, or portents of doom, mm. of, uh, you know, of what, again, I mean, thinking mm. back to, I'm just thinking of Dickens when I said that, you know, um, thinking of... Uh, a lot classier, I was just thinking of Patrick Swayze's ghost. The, there I? you go. Oh, God, of course, yeah. But again, that idea of them coming back to, again, protect against uh, an, a, another form of evil taking hold or a terrible thing happening, so premonition almost, or indeed uh, being able to see something from the other side. So it's very romantic in that sense. But again, think of it in terms of the lessons of the good moral life, which you get in Dickens. Um, so, um, yeah, so ghosts are about sort of warning or giving that sort of uh, information that cannot be um, fully comprehended by the, by the living, in some ways imparting that from, from the aspect of the subjectivity of the dead. How do but you... they can also be terrible. They can also be disruptive and, 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 and malignant. You know, so. Great word, malignant. Uh, yeah. how, do you, how, do you, <laughs> how do you feel about gothic horror when it's sort of goes off piste maybe or goes into other genres so I mean I think I just mentioned ghosts there which is where we get the gothic um, mixed with love stories or what about gothic and comedy you see both of those are actually quite old as well mm. the, those hybridizations are quite old I mean the the, the the beginning of the gothic sort of um, story the haunted house story as such that was considered sort of a women's form of fiction they're reading these sort of you know these stories of these haunted houses and these terrible spaces and you know it's lurid fiction it's the fiction that women read you know so there is so this like a sort of a, hybridization sort of like a type of Mills Boone, is it? yeah but it's also the older form of the narrative romance as well this idea of it being a fantasy uh, rather than actually being a, a, a Mills but, but we do get that as well and that, that really comes into play later on with vampire fiction a little bit of zombie rom-com as well but 
more vampire fiction. Um, but you have it even in the earlier the earlier novels of the traditional sort of romance, fantasy, and, and the gothic. So that's that's the the inception of it. Um, romance in the gothic, uh, yeah, you do get some of that. Um, comedy in the gothic is actually very healthy. Um, I suppose. I mean, there's, there's Dracula dead and loving it. Dracula dead and loving it, which I have to say, I I, I really struggled with. Um, but um, there's a couple of great ones. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head now. Uh, this great 1979 vampire film. Uh, I can see the poster. Um, where uh, Dracula comes to New York to rescue his girlfriend, who is a model, of course, and he takes her back to uh, Transylvania at the end. So it's it's quite amusing. But again, he's got that kind of count out of water kind of thing stuck in the middle of 70s disco studio 54 new york so it is it is quite spectacular um the name of it will come back to me in a moment but anyway um uh the, yeah so but then i mean i'm even thinking of uh, actually one of the better ones which is very very recent is um what we do in the shadows which is just a magnificent comedy vampire comedy about you know a flat share in new zealand and how vampires cope with living with each other dealing with the politics of each other and what happens so when who you bring who's milk exactly who won't do the dishes which is one of my particular favorites or who's doing going to do the hoovering i mean it is wonderful that must be interesting um, because it's making it more it's making the supernatural hyper mundane exactly and in so doing it actually gives it more um more of a strange corporeality to it it gives it this idea of if you've got vampires that are stretched and split across pixicals in pixicality terms you know with cgi where they don't look real uh, and that can breed a lot of disinterest and we know that because things start looking so fake on the screen we don't particularly have any emotional investment the thing that actually strangely reinfuses interest in vampires or reinfuses interest in, in creatures that look real is when they actually replicate our own domestic existence and how our bland mundane lives and fighting over who's going to do the dishes that actually might be going on for 900 years in a flat chair yeah that's <laughs> the banality what, of evil uh, exactly yeah. the banality of, 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 of yeah exactly of evil it is evil not to do the washing yeah exactly you know what i mean so it's it's that kind of feeling um so there's a there's quite an interesting way of looking at the com- the comedic of it. I mean, there is gentle comedy which deploys sort of you know sweet versions of ghosts and thinking of Casper the Friendly Ghost, for instance. Uh, um, you know, Sabrina, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which I have to say, I teenager, I just loved Sabrina. I always wanted to talk in cat, so I always thought those things would be kind of fun. So um, you have very gentle deploying um things from which it's deployed, but at the end of the day, uh, it's all about that little gentle touch of supernatural. That thing that makes it a little bit extra, a little bit different, and gets you away from the mundane existence of our lives. Um, Sabrina though has originates out of a very very violent um comic book series, which I I'd only recently discovered, and I was fascinated to see how totally different it is in graphic novel form from. You know the the very sweet natured TV show in the nineteen nineties. So uh, so it just goes to show you you can hybridize something for a completely different audience as well. I um I'd like to talk to you uh, before we come to an end uh, about um well uh, your guy I guess Clive Barker. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, so um you kind of I guess you're uh, I mean you're you're a research specialist on Barker's work is that correct? Oh and actually more so on the vampires but I did in the last few I actually funnily enough that about seven years ago I did a conference in Trinity College Dublin when I was there as a an associate lecturer. Uh, and I did a conference on Barker. It's the only conference that ever actually took place on Barker. Um, and he, get, you know, he joined us for the two days. I uh, didn't didn't get involved with the plenaries. Uh, sorry, with the panels because I, I think that might have been a bit too eerie for him. But um, he was very very kind to and to to give two plenaries at the at the conference as well. So it kind of was this great springboard for an author who always hits the New York Times bestseller list when he produces a novel. But someone who was not being discussed or kind of got the kind of gothic studies traction that so his like, counterparts would have. You know? So like uh, Stephen King, for yeah, example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. King is always kind of the the go-to horror writer that you know, when he releases a book, and I, I'll do it myself, he will, um, you know, he will hit the bestseller list. So people do inevitably buy his book. The same is true for Barker, even though Barker's had a very different career trajectory to King. But um, Barker has, has always kind of... He's hit different audiences at different periods in their lives. And I think that that's something that King has been consistent. And whether you find that bland or you find that reliable depends on what kind of reader you are. Where where do you see the importance of Barker within the, the history of the Gothic? Um, 
he would very rarely be described as someone who is gothic. I would claim him as gothic because I think that's actually a better term for him than, than as a horror writer. Um, because he's always talking about fantasy and disruption and making the world strange. So I think that he meets those criteria quite easily. Um, but a lot of people still describe him as a horror author. And he isn't a con- consistent horror author. He started off as a splatterpunk writer writing about the destruction of the body in a very sort of profound way in the 1980s. Um, so we write about, you know, um, his, 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 his short story, um, collection of short stories um, called The Books of Blood, which are powerful and profound in terms of uh, queer theory, in terms of looking at the way um, the body can be a place of transcendental transformation, of existentialism. It, it was really, really interesting space uh, and textual space to look at modifications and and understanding the contemporary world. And that's just the, those series of short stories. They're bookended by a story about a body that is literally written on by spirits. It carves the stories into this body of this person. Um, so that's the kind of fantastic idea of the, the body as a book, as the body as a flesh, uh, as a piece of flesh that can be read as a book. It's actually the, the epigraph to the to the whole collection is once we're open, we're read. This is the pun. So it's quite it's quite wonderful. Um, but Barker gets bored quite easily. So what happens was he did this, it was a huge success for him. He wrote a short story called The Hellbound Heart. He then sold that to New World Pictures and they and he says, Can I direct it? Never directed before. Um he directed theatre but not film. And uh, they said, yes, you're fine. And he directed Hellraiser, which became a huge hit. It was made for $900,000 and it became a really big hit because of the iconic imagery of Pinhead, um, the lead Cenobite um, played by Doug Bradley. So you get these really interesting ascensions. I mean, within five years, he's a best-selling author and he's directed a film. I mean, it's unheard of, really. Um, And then from there, he kind of becomes this horror maven because he's been associated with guts and gore and you know I'm pulling people apart with chains and stuff as you see in, in, in Hellraiser he also had another novel a fantastic Faustian novel that's pretty much always love, overlooked called The Damnation Game which is set in London and it's all to do with playing uh, playing cards and selling your soul around post-war uh, Warsaw and then it's relocated to modern day London Would you put him on a par with the Edgar Allan Poe's of the world or the the Stokers or the yeah, his earlier career, I think, I think has been better than his later material. That happens to everybody, though. Um, I mean, he, it's hard to place him. He's so different, and he has the best combination. He doesn't have the he used to be as prolific as King, but not anymore. Um, he's got the dark fantasy of um, God. I'm trying to think of someone who would be just completely invested in secondary worlds. Um. I can't even think of anyone who he's very close with in those terms. Um, he's he's very much interested in taking the mundane and obliterating it and making something fantastic or magical about it. Um, but he kind of goes off into these different sort of substrands. Then he makes a lot. He 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 talks about writing dark fantasy. Uh, dark fantasy being the thing that he's uh, the dark fantastique, which is sort of this kind of combination of fantasy and horror, but not not always with this idea of it can descend into something truly horrible but it can also be truly something quite sublime and existentially rewarding so it's quite interesting that he he kind of oscillates between the two quite readily and then of course he went into drive to because again he gets bored uh he decided in the end then to write a hollywood ghost story which was wonderful called cold heart canyon uh which really is sort of his bitter response to not being taken seriously as a filmmaker in hollywood um he had a very bad relationship with the studios and then he ends up writing children's fiction. So he ends up going off and painting all these oil canvases for about six years and creating this entire world um, for children. It's a very interesting time when it happens too because Harry Potter has just become really huge. Uh, so his the series starts off with a huge bang. People are very excited about this idea of him writing children's fiction um, because he's so creative and imaginative. And it is it is suitable for kids as well. But he can't keep up with the pace. So something like J.K. J.K. Rowling, who just, you know, I mean, did an incredible amount of work to get those books out as fast as she did, um, he couldn't match that at all. So because the paintings took too long as well, so he's still yet to complete the series of the quintet of um of Avarash as well. So he's he's not got an equal, and I think that in some ways that's the problem. You can say he's a bit like King. He's a bit like um Poe in some respects. He's a bit like. Uh, I can't think of any fantasy writer he's very like, but he's he's got these elements where you go, okay, he's he's fascinating, but he doesn't fit the mold. You could put him in three different areas in a bookshop, and that's where you lose audiences as well. So I think this is the 
the creative genius, but also the cost, you know, critical cost to it. So, so I was very determined to reclaim him as someone who not just was because academics who who do go back to Barker and talk about Barker always talk about his eighties fiction because it was so profoundly interesting and so uh, transgressive for the nineteen eighties. But they stop after about 1990. And I thought, no, he's actually doing something very interesting for the second half and third part of his career as well. He stops directing films, but he starts creating something else. He's he's very, very, uh, he's very much a polymath. So that's what I was kind of interested in recouping in some respect. So i got one last question for you, sorry, Ken. Um, do you ever think, I mean, given <laughs> the proliferation of uh, horror, of versions of the Gothic, vampires, werewolves, ghosts, um, is there ever a danger you think of it uh, reaching a critical mass or, a, or perhaps sorry not a critical mass the opposite because mass uh, critical exhaustion do you think yeah and this happens with particular monsters in particular so what happens is that you find that um, what type of sentence I'm sorry um, you find that what happens is that monsters come and go monsters come into fashion or indeed they, they die away so vampires are not really fashionable at the moment because we have too many on saturation of just complete saturation yeah i mean the post i think pretty much post true blood we kind of thought oh god no no more vampires please so um not me but most other people um so i think that 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 exhaustion you just you find the metaphors overextended itself the same thing is going to happen with zombies the same and then we'll have something else come and take its place in fiction or in television the thing that's interesting though is that and then they'll rejuvenate again in 10 15 years this happened in the 90s this happened in the 70s and 60s so it's it's not new the thing that's interesting though is that the cycles are becoming more rapid and the exhaustion is coming ever in ever quicker turns so i think the hyper postmodernity that we're facing into this idea of things just getting more accelerated and and and, and more rapidly ingested and thrown away i think that's what's going to that, that, that's where we're at with these particular Im, Im, images and iterations. However, the second anyone, people have done it across scholarship, the second we say something is dead and over in the Gothic, it's actually really just a starting point for something much more so interesting. Plenty more to be scared so of. So there's always more to be scared of because we're always going to be scared. So we just need something to best tap into that terror. So. Come on, Jimmy. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.